As we enter John chapter 11, we find ourselves at a turning point in John's gospel as we're halfway through the 21 chapters of the book. But then on top of that, this chapter marks the end of Jesus's general ministry. When we start in chapter 12 next week, we'll find ourselves in the final week leading up to Jesus's crucifixion. So you might ask yourself, okay, well, why the sudden change? It seems strange that John would try to cram almost three years of ministry in just 11 chapters and then dedicate the rest of the book to just one single week. But part of what brings us to this turning point in John's gospel is what we'll see Jesus do today. He's about to do something that he's never done so far in this gospel. And it's the final straw for the religious leaders who oppose him. But considering that we're halfway through the book, let's run through some of the big passages we've covered so far. In chapters 1 through 2, we focus on verses 1 through 18. The word became flesh. We talked about the uniqueness of Jesus's relationship with God the Father. We talked about Jesus' eternal existence. We talked about his incarnation as both fully God and fully man. From there, we moved to chapter 3, where we heard Jesus say, you must be born again. He tells Nicodemus, that curious religious leader, that in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to be given the right to become a child of God, you must be born of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, we saw the woman at the well. Similar to that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that in order to become a true worshiper, to worship in both spirit and truth, she must have living water that only Jesus can provide. In chapter 5, we saw Jesus make audacious claims to authority. He said he was equal with God, the Son of God, and that God had given him authority as judge. Thus, if you reject Jesus the Son, you reject God the Father. In chapter 6, Jesus said he is the bread of life. It's through him that God provides sustenance for his people. Jesus is a better Moses, leading people not out of slavery in Egypt, but leading them out of slavery to sin. Chapter 7 and 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It is only when we are enlightened by Jesus that we can see our world, see God, and see ourselves rightly. In chapter 9, Zach preached on the man born blind, where Jesus tells the religious leaders that they too are blind, but in a different kind of way. He says they're missing the work of God through Jesus right in front of their own eyes. And then finally, last week in chapter 10, Jesus said that he is the good shepherd, the shepherd that God promised long ago. The religious leaders have been bad shepherds, leading God's people into sin and destruction. But Jesus loves his sheep, calls his sheep by name, and will soon lay down his life for his sheep on the cross. Now, so far in the best moments, the religious leaders have been curious and confused about Jesus. And in their worst moments, they've tried to arrest him or maybe even stone him. So what is it today that finally pushes them over the edge? What makes the most powerful religious leaders in Jerusalem lay down the verdict that Jesus must die? And how do Jesus' words and Jesus' actions in John chapter 11 remind us of our core Christian hope, our core Christian joy, the one thing we anticipate more than anything else? So with that, open your Bibles to John chapter 11. Feel free to use one of the Bibles that we provide if we need to, and take a Bible home with you if you don't have one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of John that we've been reading so far. We're a couple months into it, and... There are things that we've noticed that maybe we've never noticed before. There are themes that we've picked up on. But, Father, I pray that you'd continue to be with us as we finish the book of John over the next month or so. I pray that you would 
Give us wisdom as we read these words. Give us understanding through both the power of your word and through the presence of your spirit. And Father, I pray that we would take the words that we read and that they would change our hearts and change our minds and, as a result, change our words and and change our actions. Father, thank you for your son, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, his sheep. I pray that we would follow him, that we would listen to him, that we would recognize his voice. So, Father, be with us this morning as we continue in your word. Thank you for this time of singing and prayer and reading from your word and communion, all the things that we do together as believers, not just as strangers gathered in the same place for an hour, but as brothers and sisters and as your children. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Let's begin in John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So our story begins with a sick man named Lazarus living in the village of Bethany. And from what John tells us, this is no stranger to Jesus. In fact, he is particularly close with Lazarus' whole family. They appear to have a very personal, very intimate relationship. And John stresses that Jesus loves Lazarus. And we even get a quick preview of how much Mary, one of Lazarus' sisters, worships Jesus. That will occur in chapter 12. But when Lazarus gets sick, Martha and Mary send for Jesus. They're obviously confident that he's going to be able to help in some way. After all, he healed the invalid stranger back in chapter 5. Why wouldn't he heal a close friend like Lazarus? But when Jesus hears the message sent by the family, he gives an interesting response. It should sound familiar to us. It should remind us of that word that Jesus spoke in chapter 9 about the blind man. We read there, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The same way Jesus will use this man's blindness to display the works of God, Jesus is going to use this illness with Lazarus to glorify himself. Now that all sounds good so far. Lazarus isn't going to die. God the Father is going to be glorified. Jesus is going to be glorified. It sounds like Jesus, like always in the book of John, has things under control. But then we get to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That seems a little strange. Why would he stay two days longer in the place where he was? What in the world is Jesus thinking? I mean, Lazarus is ill enough that he's close to death, but instead of going and healing him, Jesus just waits around on the other side of the river for two days. It seems like a somewhat questionable strategy for Jesus to take. And then when you really think about it, couldn't Jesus just heal Lazarus from a distance? That's what he did with the official son back in chapter 5. He doesn't even need to see Lazarus. He can just speak and poof, Lazarus is better. So why is he waiting around? What's the delay? And look again at those verses, verses 5 and 6. How does waiting around for two days while poor Lazarus suffers, how does that indicate Jesus' love for the family? I mean, if Jesus really loved them as much as John says he does, wouldn't he be treating the situation with a little bit more urgency? 
But before you get too skeptical of Jesus' tactics, remember those words in verse 4. This situation is about more than just Lazarus' health. This situation is about God's glory. And it's about Jesus' glory. And like we've seen in this gospel already, time and time again, Jesus acts when God tells him to. Nobody else. Pick up in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Remember that phrase right there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. So two days after Jesus heard the news about Lazarus, he finally decides to get up and go to Bethany. But there's one small obstacle to consider. Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. And the last time Jesus was there, he just about got himself killed. Jesus is putting his life at risk in going to see Lazarus. But then on top of that, before they even leave, Jesus tells them that Lazarus is already dead. What's the point now of such a dangerous trip? Well, the truth is that not even his own disciples fully understand the power that Jesus has and the plans that he has in store for Lazarus so that they may believe. We start to see a glimpse of this in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? So between the time that it took the messengers to reach Jesus in those first few verses, and then the two days of waiting around, 
And then another day or so of journeying to Bethany, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. There is absolutely no doubt that he's dead. And there's one thing that we haven't even revisited yet. Think back to Jesus' words in verse 4. Didn't he specifically say that Lazarus' illness would not lead to death? And yet Lazarus is in a tomb. It seems as though Jesus got it wrong. If he was trying to wait until the last possible moment to heal Lazarus for the sake of making the healing more dramatic or more impressive, then that plan obviously backfired. And then if you really want to be critical, you could classify this as a sin of omission. You have the opportunity to do the right thing, and yet you don't. If Jesus had the power to save Lazarus' life, but couldn't do it because of his own poor planning, his own negligence, does Jesus now have Lazarus' blood on his hands? But for now, let's look at the three responses that Jesus receives when he gets to Bethany. The first response is from Martha. In spite of her loss, Martha expresses great faith. She doesn't seem angry toward Jesus. In fact, she still has hope in his power and his relationship with God. Even though Martha didn't get what she wanted, her brother's survival, she still trusts Jesus, even in the midst of her grief. Response number two is from Mary. Again, Mary does not seem to be angry with Jesus either, but she also doesn't say as much as Martha does. Maybe Mary Mary is taking this a little bit harder than Martha is. And then finally, response number three, the Jews, Jesus' old sparring partners. Now, there's no reason to assume that they're only there to make snide comments about Jesus, but they certainly don't let the opportunity go to waste. But there are other things going on in these verses, too. There's that interesting conversation between Jesus and Martha, where Jesus specifically tells her that Lazarus will rise again. Now, Martha knows that one day, way in the future, Lazarus will rise from the dead. That's what all good Jews believed. But Lazarus rising now? That's just ridiculous, right? And then Jesus claims that he is the resurrection and the life. What in the world do you think that means? But then on top of that, in these verses, we see Jesus' humanity on full display. He weeps with those who are weeping. But that phrase translated, greatly troubled, that's interesting. Because that phrase emphasizes that Jesus is angry. Now, what's he angry about? The fact that he didn't get there sooner? Is he angry about the people who are mourning? Is he angry at the Jews mocking him? Or is he simply angry at the existence of death itself? But before we go any further, let's zoom out and think about all this. From what we're reading so far, this appears to be the first blunder of Jesus' ministry. All those other healings, all those other miracles, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. But it seems like he dropped the ball on this one. Lazarus is dead. His friends who trusted him are mourning. The Jews have finally found a chink in the miracle worker's armor. And you can't help but ask, why didn't Jesus just heal him right away? And this whole situation could have been avoided. But we continue in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. 
when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus prays and he makes sure that everyone can hear his prayer so that they may believe. Just like he said about the disciples, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. And now he prays so that they may believe that God has sent him. He calls out to Lazarus and the dead man rises. Just like he said in John chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's just like he said in John chapter 10, verse 3, talking about the good shepherd. Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So you put it all together and it turns out that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing all along. Because Jesus loved his disciples. Because Jesus loved Martha and Mary. And because he even loved the Jews who mocked him at the funeral. Jesus let Lazarus die. Now, how is that loving? Well, it's loving because Jesus used Lazarus' death as one more opportunity to show everyone around that God had sent him. They have yet another undeniable sign. They have yet another reason to believe. Jesus has performed every miracle, every sign that you can possibly think of, even to the point of raising a dead man in order that he might be glorified, God might be glorified, and that those around him may believe. Now, sadly, many of the Jews who saw this occur still don't believe. Instead of falling down and worshiping Jesus as they should, they tattle on him to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders decide that for the good of the nation, Jesus has to die. Little did they know just how true their words really were. But their motives were selfish. They want Jesus to die so that they don't get in trouble with Rome. They value earthly power, earthly prestige, earthly influence more than they value the Son of God. And that sets the stage for the final week of Jesus' life. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, before we move to chapter 12 next week, before we transition to that week leading up to the cross, there are several ideas to wrestle with here. The story's not as clean cut as you might think. Okay, guy gets sick, guy dies, Jesus raises him, big deal. There's a lot to think about in John chapter 11. For example, think about the idea that God would allow his people to suffer for his own glory. We saw that with the man born blind in chapter 9. We see it with Lazarus here. We see it in the Old Testament story of Job. Now that idea that God would allow his people to suffer for his glory, that's a tough pill to swallow. None of us wants to suffer, and surely God doesn't subject his people to suffering just for the fun of it. But we also can't deny that in this story, God allows a family to suffer for his purposes. That he may be glorified, that Jesus may be glorified, and so others may believe. But when you really think about it, Jesus is the perfect example of this idea. That God would allow his people to suffer for his own glory 
and the good of others. Think about the Son of God given over to a cross. The Messiah who chose obedience to God over his own human desire to avoid suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not just so that we may believe, but so that we may be saved. God subjected Jesus to suffering for you and for me and for his glory. Another idea that we have to wrestle with is, well, what does Jesus mean when he says that he is the resurrection and the life? You know, stories like this, or even if you've attended a funeral recently, funerals force you, whether you like it or not, to stare down your own mortality. Many of you have experienced this recently. I have as well. But according to Jesus, as we see in verses 25 and 26, if we believe in him, while in one sense we die, in another sense we don't. Our bodies die. Our hearts stop pumping. Our brains stop working. Our lungs stop filling. But we live on. And eventually, our bodies will rise from the dead to spend eternity with God or eternity apart from God. So as you think about Jesus saying that he is the resurrection, that he is the life, and that the one who believes in him will live forever, as you think about your own mortality, where are you? Every single one of us will die unless Jesus returns first. So where are you? And then finally, a passage like this makes us think about the Christian hope of resurrection. You know, as impressive as the resurrection of Lazarus is, that resurrection is not the basis of our eternal hope. Because while Lazarus did get a new lease on earthly life, and that's great, Lazarus did eventually still die. In the Old Testament, the prophets Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. But like Lazarus, those people eventually died too. The basis of our eternal hope is one resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. The one who died and rose never to die again. The one who is alive at this moment, sitting at the right hand of God. The one who will one day return. And because of him, because of Jesus, because of his cross, because of his resurrection, we look forward to our own resurrection. We look forward to our eternity with God. Early Christian martyrs were often beheaded. They were often burned alive for their faith. Their persecutors would intentionally destroy their bodies upon their death. They did that in hopes of discouraging other Christians from looking forward to a resurrection. After all, how can you resurrect a body that isn't all there? But their Christian hope still remained. Because they knew better than to doubt the resurrection power of God. That's why tombstones were often made to face east, anticipating Christ's return like the rising of the sun. The thought was that when Christ returns... The bodies of the faithful will rise to greet him. Some people will write poems on their tombstones, one like this one. Go home, dear friends, and leave us here, and let us lay till Christ appear. When Christ appears, we hope to have a joyful rising from the grave. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is our hope. That is our joy. Not some temporary new lease on life, but eternity after death in the presence of God. Living forever in the presence of our Savior, in the presence of our Lord. Living forever in the presence of the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's what we look forward to. That's what we wait for, and that's what we rejoice in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he was born 
of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he did the things that we're reading about in the Gospel of John, that he healed blind people and he raised people from the dead and he made lepers clean. But Father, thank you for your son's death, which is quickly approaching in the Gospel of John. But thank you for his resurrection. And thank you that we look forward to resurrection as well. That we know that the end is not just when our hearts stop pumping and our brains stop working and our lungs stop filling. Father, I pray that you would give us that hope. Help us be those who conquer, like we read about in the book of Revelation. The one who conquers will be in your presence. Thank you for your word and your church and your Holy Spirit, these gifts of your grace in order that we can conquer, that we can be faithful, that we can withstand to the end. Thank you that you're in the business of resurrection. And we look forward to the day when we will be resurrected once and for all, when death really, truly, finally loses its sting. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ the first fruits of the resurrection. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. We're going to transition into our time of communion. Again, if you are not yet a believer, we always want to give you the opportunity to talk to one of our elders. So near the end of our service, after we take communion, after we do some more singing, you're welcome to talk to one of those guys. But let's stand together as we sing, and then we'll go into our time of communion.
come to a point in our service when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and take communion together. And it's been uh, quite a few weeks now since we were in John chapter 6, uh, where Jesus fed the 5,000 and, uh, and gave some lessons and illustrations about he was the bread of the world. And in that passage, there is a, a callback to an Old Testament story uh, that Jesus only touched on briefly, um, and we didn't have uh, fully enough time there at the time to explore that Old Testament story a little bit further. People of Israel had been delivered out of Egypt, and God had brought them through the Red Sea at great peril, uh, especially to the Egyptians who didn't make it. And then they got to the other side, to uh, the wilderness in Sinai, and that was not a surprise to God that, oh my goodness, my people ended up in this wilderness. What are we going to do now? There's no food. There's no water. He knew all along that he was going to take his people through the water and that they were going to be in the wilderness. And the people responded uh, predictably with grumbling and discontentment because they were hungry. And that's what we do when we're hungry. And then in Exodus chapter 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. And in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. The purpose of the test not being to determine whether or not they were fit to be God's people. They were already God's people. He had already brought them out of the land, but now to see how they would live in response to that. Uh, let's see, down in verse 6. At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. It wasn't just to give them food. That, uh, oh no, now we're in the middle of nowhere. We need to find a rest stop just to keep you people from dying. God knew all along that they were going to need food. And that he was going to provide it in this way. Uh, and that he was going to, just as he did with Lazarus, send his people into a season of challenge trial and perhaps even suffering so that they could see his glory. And at the end of that wilderness time, 40 years later, uh, Moses reminds the next generation of Israelites who had grown up with manna and for whom it was normal, uh, bread falls from heaven, magic donuts every morning, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. These people grew up uh, gathering their food every morning and eating all of it. And by the end of the day, there was nothing. And they knew that if God didn't come through overnight again, that the next day was going to be very bleak indeed. And Jesus uh, quite rightly picked up on that uh, actually, not as so much picking up on that, but God placed it there as an Old Testament story, pointing us forward to Jesus. When we get to the end of the day, when we get to the end of ourselves, we need to recognize that we have nothing. If God doesn't come through for us, um, though we may be physically well cared for and provided for, that spiritually, on our own, we have nothing. And we need him to come through for us. And while he may have initially brought us out of our sin and, and baptized us the same way that Israel passed through the water, we need him in an ongoing, everyday manner. And that's why we take communion every time we gather, every week, 
so that we can remember that uh, we need to be humble before the Lord because we have nothing and that uh, we need him and his words every day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can uh, turn our attention not just to uh, what you did while you were on the earth 2,000 years ago, extraordinary signs, so that we may believe that you are the Christ and that you are sent from God, but that you also uh, give us an opportunity in our service to remember that uh, we need you for life just as much as Lazarus needed you for life, and that uh, without you uh, sustaining us and providing for us each and every day, we are as good as Lazarus was in that tomb. Thank you that you brought him back so that uh, he could have life again temporarily and that uh, his family could celebrate in that and that all of his disciples and those who saw it could believe. But thank you that you've also given us life so that we can um, be reconciled to you, be rescued from our sins and delivered from that. And thank you that we can celebrate that uh, here this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. i 
should now be holding an uh, empty cup. When the offering comes by in a moment, there will be a basket into which you can place that cup, and there will be a bag into which you can place uh, whatever offering you'd like to make. If you're a guest this morning, then all we would ask that you place in the bag is one of these green contact cards so that we can give you a bit of a thank you note for for coming this morning. Uh, And, of course, there will be elders continuing to be available if uh, you'd like to talk to any of them about what we've uh, talked about this morning. Uh, It occurred to me that uh, just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses reminds the people about the manna, but then he warns them that they're about to go into a land uh, full of abundance. And uh, he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God, uh, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's great danger in uh, material prosperity. Uh, Easy to say that when you have it and live amongst it. Uh, But um, to have plenty is to think yourself sufficient. And one of the reasons that we practice an offering each and every week, uh, we could easily go to direct deposit or electronic transfer or whatever. But uh, it's part of our worship that we give to the Lord part of what we have so that we can remind ourselves that All that we have is from him, and that nothing we have gained or acquired uh, came apart from his hands or did not flow through it. So, uh, Prairie View folks, uh, as you give, remember, this is uh, just as much worship as anything we have done this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the uh, wonderful land in which you have placed us, especially this uh, corner of Hamilton County, which knows such plenty. But uh, also we know that there are uh, also... Uh, corners of desperate need as well. And thank you that we have a benevolence team here that can help address some of the physical needs that are in this community. And thank you that the generosity of your people enables that mission and ministry, as well as all of the other of the things that uh, you are working through this church, accomplishing on this corner. Thank you for the generosity that you've placed in the heart of this people and the um, ability to do work, the desire to see it done, and then the uh, the wisdom that you give us and how to handle what you have entrusted to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
One of the things that we've mentioned before when we baptize people here at Prairie View is that baptism, the act of immersing someone in water, is symbolic of a death and resurrection. And so as Joshua mentioned, in a sense, in a very real sense, we were all dead. And yet Christ called out our names and brought us back to life. And so this morning, if you have any doubts about what that means, if you have any doubts about whether or not you've been given that new life through the Holy Spirit, that new life in Christ, whether you want to talk about baptism, maybe you've been a believer for some time and haven't been baptized, our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to answer your questions, happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you. Again, we're very grateful that you've chosen to worship with us here this morning. Let's stand as we pray one more time, and then we'll close out with a song. Father, thank you that you are the giver of new life, that you call out to dry bones, and your word goes out over dry bones, and you give them life. You give them blood to pump, and muscles and tendons, and you make dead things live. That you've made lost and dead sinners live by your Holy Spirit, and that you're still making lost and dead sinners live to this very day. So, Father, thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for the joy and the anticipation and the hope that we have in the future, that one day death will really, truly, fully, once and for all be defeated. Father, I pray that you give us the strength and the courage to be faithful as we leave here, as we go all the places that we go, and as we seek to be your witnesses in this world. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this morning. I pray that this church would be a place that we can come and fill up and be encouraged and strengthened and taught and sent back out into the world to be your representatives. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.